what is going to happen in the future and you know what is Judaism going to look like in Bowling Green and of course we never had a building we rented space from the Unitarian Church you know we didn't have deep pockets we just had to bear it down to you know just the basics of this is what Judaism is but our story is twofold. Our story is raising, you know, a Jewish family in a small town, but the interfaith component is there whether it's a small town or a major metropolitan area. It doesn't matter because there are so many interfaith families that don't have a clue about what they should be doing. That's my mom, in the first recording that we ever made for this podcast. For her, this podcast was always about the Jewish future. For me, well, it's a bit more complicated. And while I honestly didn't want to start here, I probably should, because I'm releasing this podcast around Hanukkah 2023. And with everything going on in the world right now, that Jewish future looks more fragile than ever. But Hanukkah, more than anything, is about spreading light. And nothing lights up my life more than a really good story. And while the rabbis do say that in times of trouble, you can light your Hanukkah menorah inside, I grew up in the South with an eight-foot-tall menorah planted in my front yard. I led Passover seders at the local Catholic church with my mother. I was the first and sometimes the only Jew that most of my friends ever met. And for a year, I wore a kippah to school as an act of protest. The point is, I've been Jewish in public my whole life, just not on tape. So in the spirit of Hanukkah, I'll try to bring the light by telling a really good story. But first, we have to start in the dark. In November 2018, I found myself on a phone call with a reporter from The Atlantic. It was about a week after a terrorist shot up a synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The reporter was researching a piece on Jewish life and anti-Semitism in the United States. A professor had put us in touch. I spent about an hour sharing stories with this reporter about my family's religious history and our experiences living Jewishly in Southern Kentucky. As I spoke, the stories just kept coming. I told the reporter about the Hanukkah menorah that my father built in the front yard, about navigating evangelism in our public schools and with our Baptist cousins over Sunday dinner at Granny's house. I told her about how my mother didn't grow up with a strong Jewish education and wasn't even really interested in Judaism, at least until her own children were born, about how she drove us to Nashville most weeks for over 10 years so we would get the Jewish education that she never did, before turning around and making the 72-mile drive back home to Kentucky. My name is Nathan Jordan Vaughn, and I was raised in a Jewish interfaith family in Bowling Green, Kentucky, a relatively small town in the south-central portion of the state. My mother was from Detroit, a child of the 60s and 70s who was deeply committed to equity and feminism. Her early memories of Judaism weren't all that positive, she remembered long hours in stuffy services in a synagogue named for her great-grandparents, who she'd never met. She told me about her grandfather, Zadie, 
who locked himself away for hours to pray and study in Hebrew and Yiddish every Shabbat, and about her grandmother, Bubby, who ate tuna from tin cans on an aluminum foil placemat because the family home wasn't kosher. And she also remembered that through all of this, no one ever actually taught her how to be Jewish. So the first chance she got, she rebelled. She joined an evangelical youth group for a ski trip, got sucked in, as she would say, and wound up in Kentucky studying social work at Campbellsville University, a private Christian college. My father was born in the red dirt of North Carolina's tobacco fields, and he grew up Southern Baptist, going to small country churches with devout parents and a large family. His father, my grandfather, was a sergeant in the U.S. Army Tank Corps, and the family spent years moving from one Army base to another in Oklahoma, North Carolina, and even Germany, before settling down at Fort Knox in Radcliffe, Kentucky, home to the U.S. Army Armor School, in addition to all the gold. On Sundays, when there was no Sunday school, my father put us in the car anyway and drove us north for Sunday dinner at Granny's house, where we held hands with aunts, uncles, and cousins, and gave thanks for the bounty on the table, but always in Jesus' name. We spent 16 years in Bowling Green, navigating our way through different communities, across religious, cultural, political, and state lines. We learned what to talk about, and when, and to whom. We learned when to speak out and when to be silent. And along the way, we did what our family does best. We made memories and turned them into really good stories. Traditions in my life have always been blended, especially religious traditions. It's part of what made my family different from other families in Bowling Green. So when in doubt, we made it up as we went along and at least came away with a good story for the effort, one that we could proudly retell to anyone who would listen. These are the stories that we still share with each other over and over, stories that have defined our family's identity, that reinforce our connections with each other, and that help us remember where we've come from so we can figure out where we're going next. Stories, in other words, that continue the tradition of blended traditions. My mother probably said it best. As each generation passes away, it is the willingness of the youth to study and accept the responsibility and privilege of being Jewish that provides the continuity and preserves our traditions. Sometimes continuity can be as simple as telling a good story. And we'll start with one of my favorite stories one that my parents told often. It's a story about being Jewish and not being Jewish, about navigating life and life's important moments as an interfaith family, and avoiding the natural culture clash that comes when you're secretly trying to snack on some authentic Chesapeake Bay crab legs at your sister's kosher wedding. Like all Southern folk stories, the chronology here is a bit shifty. Some of the details don't quite align, and who knows what's been embellished over time. Enjoy. Aunt Phyllis and Uncle Mark's wedding. Oh, yes. Oh, Lord Jesus. <laughs> okay, first of all, what do y'all remember of it? Wait, is this little crab lobster? This is the crab story. This is the crab story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We went to Norfolk, Virginia for the wedding. Now, to set the stage, we, your mother is a Reformed Jew, which means we're pretty, you know, 
We're loose with the rules. A little really loose with the rules, all right? Well, that's not a fair. Just go with that, though, for right now. We're not going theological. Anyway, how many crabs did you eat that day? Phyllis was marrying somebody who was much more... Observant. Observant. That's a good word. And your mother was going to be the maid of honor. And anyway, we got there. It was Thanksgiving weekend of all times. So we got there on a Wednesday, and there was a waterfront place. And so we kind of went down there. We were just kind of looking around for food. And there was a crab bar. Well, everybody was closing down for some reason. It was like 6 o'clock, Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And we said something. I said, can we have a dozen? And she goes, she gave us a dozen handfuls. And so we kind of ate some, you know, everything. And we went back. to We put them in the cooler. But they gave us this little Swiss Army knife. Well, the night before the reception, the wedding, they got the whole floor of the hotel. And the middle was a party room. And so all the freedmen were on one end. And all the groom's side was on the other side, right? And so we went down there, and they had some food and stuff like that. And your mother and I said, we're going to go back to the room, and we're going to break open some crabs. So we took the little Swiss Army knife, and we started breaking up down our room. And all of a sudden, two little boys that we know and love came banging on the door and said, Mommy, Daddy! We're like, go away! We don't want them to know we're down here unclean! To be clear... No one in the family kept kosher at the time, except my aunt and uncle. My grandfather liked to joke that when he joined the army, his strictly kosher father told him to eat whatever they put in front of him. Don't worry if it's kosher or not. You don't know where your next meal is coming from. And when my grandfather got out of the army, he just kept eating bacon. My uncle's family, on the other hand, they're strictly kosher. My parents didn't want to miss out on some great crab, but they also didn't want to cause a scene. So they left my brother and I with family and locked themselves in their room for a quiet feast. We had tried to leave you with your grandparents so we could have a little time to ourselves. You weren't having any of it, you know. You just kept running back to us. And, of course, we had the door locked because we didn't want anybody to know that we had crabs in there because we just didn't want to make a big deal of it. Now, also, they had bought cereal, milk, and stuff like that for breakfast that we were going to put out in the party room for everybody. So that night, I tended bar. They had some food and everything was cool. However, there was meat on the table and therefore they could not do dairy. However, we had coffee and everybody wanted a little cream in their coffee. So I'm dishing out the milk to all these Orthodox Jewish men who wanted a little cream in their coffee. Now, mind you, it was Friday. They could not cook on Saturday. So Mark had contracted with the ladies at the temple, and they had all this beautifully fried chicken, had all this potato salad, all this fresh food ready to go. And so we went, I helped, got it. We took it to the hotel. They wrapped it all up and shoved it in the cooler. We couldn't eat it. It was like, Mark, have you ever eaten cold fried chicken? Two days later, and he just like, looked at me and said, shut up, be happy. And the other thing was, they got very picky about pushing the buttons on the elevator and so they i came out of the party room one time and the two of you were looking at all of them and they were looking at y'all hoping that one of the two of you would push the call button for the elevator so the elevator would come because they could not push the call button there was a lot of that shenanigans that was happening and it was just a culture clash it really was and then when We had to go to Saturday morning services. Talk about culture clash. So we're in this nice synagogue. 
round pews, the rabbis up front at the bima and everything like that. Okay, cool. And so I put my yarmulke on. And I'm sitting there very polite and quiet and everything. Your mother's sitting beside me. Your grandfather and grandmother are sitting in front of us, you know, and some of these people. You know, all the relatives are all like, like sitting there together. And I'm just like, okay, fine. And then all of a sudden, one of the people of the temple walked up and had a prayer shawl and hit me in the back of oh, my shoulders. And it's like, what the? What the? All right. And they said, put it on. And I was like, I'm not Jewish. And your mother's trying to say, he's not Jewish. It doesn't matter. Put it on anyway. And so I said, shh, 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 shh. It's just another layer of wool. I'll be just fine. So I put this, put it on like this. And I'm sitting there with my arms crossed with this parasol on me, watching the service. And Irv, your grandfather, turned around and looked at me in this real, what the look. And I said, he told me to. <laughs> and he just, he lost it at that point and just turned back around, just bent over laughing. And then you two, we took y'all to like, there's like a children's service or whatever. And so I'm over there with them, and the rabbi's kid was in there. And he says, oh, we don't go back until the roof roof. And I'm going, until the dog barks? I mean, I had no idea what this was, right? It was a blessing for the couple getting married. When they bring them up on the beam, the rabbi blesses them. And then we all throw candy at them. And then the kids run up and get the candy. Now, in true Southern fashion, I had to tell you that story so I could tell you this story. About a random Friday night at our house, maybe eight or nine years after my dad got a crash course in Jewish culture and my aunt's wedding, to show just how far he and our Jewish interfaith family had come since then. I came home, it was Friday night, I had had a hard day, I was hungry, food was on the table, and the three of you were arguing over who was going to do the candles, who was going to do the bread, who was going to do the wine. Your mother did the candles, and you two started arguing, and I just picked up the glass and started Kaddish or Kiddish, is it Kiddish? And then I said the mozi, and I said, let's eat. And y'all just looked at me, it's like, where did you learn that? I've been listening to it for 10 years or whatever. I eventually pick it up, I just I have no idea what I'm saying. But it's what you want to be said so I can eat. When we first started talking about this podcast, it was my mother who insisted that we share more than just the fun stories, but her whole story, as best we could. My mother spent the last 20 years of her life as a Jewish educator and synagogue professional, helping sacred spaces strengthen themselves for a new generation of American Jews. After over 40 years of living an interfaith life, she once wrote, raising a family and watching my sons create their own Jewish lives while being respectful of their blended heritage, I've learned a lot about what it means to be Jewish, interfaith, and the blending of the two. More than anything, my mother wanted to share what she'd learned with the world, which is why we started recording this content in the first place because it turned out that we learned a lot along the way. And when we finally sat down to record these stories, we did something that a lot of families never get the chance to. We talked openly and honestly about what we had learned and what we might have done differently the second time around. What did we learn from all this? One. There was expectations on me that I understood a lot more about Judaism than I did. I was at the same level as you two at that point. I can spell Jewish. 
But that's as far as I can go in a lot of times. I knew what a kippah was, you know, this, that, and the other. But some of the smaller nuances, some of the smaller traditions, expectations, I didn't know. And so all of a sudden, I'm stumbling along through all these things with you two. And your mother is telling us this is the new rules. And you two are looking at me. And it's like, you're the adult. Back us up. And I, I did become kind of the ringleader of the rebellion a lot of times. I guess the, in comparing what I learned about Judaism over a very short period of time to what I grew up in the Southern Baptist, we always had Bible studies every Wednesday afternoon with my mother. All the neighborhood kids came over, and she had all the little stories, and she passed out candy at the end. That's what the kids were there for anyway. So I knew what the expectations were when I went to church. I sit quietly. I listened. I sing the little songs, all in English. And I felt comfortable there. That was a very warm, comfortable feeling because I was young. I did not understand church politics like I do now. It was just fine. There was nothing mystical about it. Everything was very much open and upfront and there. However, when I went to Jews, there was the Hebrew. And then there were these traditions that seemed to, uh, how do I phrase this tactfully, shift depending on who was doing it. Some people fasted. Some people had a little bit of food just because whatever. Some people just ignored it and just, that's fine. We don't have to do that anymore. You know, that's just the way it is. But I started learning that, started observing it. But that being said, I did learn a lot. Now, if I were to do it over again, there's a couple of books I would have, should have read up front. And we probably should have read them together, the three of us, three males, as bedtime stories, because there's just a lot of little things that we didn't know or do. And if I were doing it over again, I would have read them with your dad so that he understood what we were going to be doing. But a lot of it, there was nothing out there on how to do Jewish as an interfaith family. We were stumbling through it on our own. There are so many resources now, and there certainly wasn't anything on how to do an interfaith family in the midst of a born-again community. It just wasn't there. And there was so much that I personally didn't know because I grew up in a basically non-practicing Jewish family. I was raised in kind of a quasi-Orthodox, I call it conservadox because it was somewhere between conservative and orthodox. I never learned Hebrew. I never had any Sunday school classes. I had to learn how to light Shabbat candles. I was learning with you guys, because my mother never lit Shabbat candles. We never had challah. I had to learn these things. And the books you brought home, I, I started reading through them, and I kind of like there was a real eye-opener. And I was like, how do I feel about this? When we got married, it was going to be a joint thing, but all of a sudden it's like, I'm not really sure about some of these things, you know? Fasting, three-hour services. I didn't know the Hebrew. What would I do differently now? I'm not sure there's a whole lot I would do. One, by not knowing Hebrew, I had a barrier there that I really wasn't going to become Jewish. And I thought, that's good. I didn't want to be Jewish. I knew that if I learned Hebrew, I'd have to be Jewish. I learned enough Hebrew just listening to you two doing you going through your bar mitzvah, I could hold my own a lot of times because I could say certain prayers just as well as any of those Jews down there at Micah. Next time on 72 Miles, a little background. The history of my family 
which is really the history of two families, both American, but with totally different backgrounds, cultures, and traditions. And an introduction to a second family, one that's make-believe, conjured from the imagination of an early 20th century Jewish writer in an epic Yiddish poem that follows the life of Josh, a Jewish blacksmith, newly immigrated from Lithuania, who settles in Kentucky with his wife and young son. 72 Miles features the stories of three separate interfaith Jewish families, two real, one not, and one mine. Together, they trace 150 years of Kentucky history with experiences that resonate today about being Jewish in America, about being Jewish and being Southern at the same time, and the blending of the two. So strap in and take a ride with me up and down I-65 or back and forth on the LNN Railroad. In the end, the when and the who don't make as much difference as you might think, but the where sure does. My name is Nathan Jordan Vaughn. It's 72 miles till Kentucky. Let's get moving.